take your copy of God's Word if you have it, and uh, let's open it up to the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, and we're in the sixth chapter of Matthew, closing out this section. If you have the right Bible, it's on page 1,325. Otherwise, uh, you'll have to find it. It's right after Malachi, and then you'll find it. So go to the middle, and then go right, and you'll find Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 6. And many of you, I don't know about you, but my Bible now is so used to going to Matthew 5, 6 area that that's just where it flops open to. And and uh, I keep looking with some measure of legalistic guilt at there are certain sections where it does not flop open to. In fact, I'll tell you which one. Second Chronicles 30 uh, doesn't, no, does not open, does not flop to Second Chronicles, but it will in time as uh, we have opportunity to study through God's Word together. And uh, I hope you're enjoying Matthew chapter 6. I hope it's been a, uh, an appropriate enjoyment, one that comes with the weight of what we're studying. I know that many of you have mentioned that, and I trust your grace groups have helped you even more to think about the depth of what we're studying and the demands that it places on us and the opportunity we have for grace from our Lord and the power that we have because of uh, the transformation of our hearts to actually live in obedience, to live in these realities that we find in Matthew chapter 6. They are daunting, and these last weeks in Matthew 6, dealing with our issue of treasures in this life, and really boiling it down, the issue of idols in our hearts and the exclusive demands of the followers of Christ, um, is a painful subject for us, and yet it is a joyful one, because that is what we've been saved to do. I mean, that is the perspective that we have been redeemed to live by. And I trust that it's been a blessing to you. We're going to spend our time today actually finishing out this chapter. And we're going to study verses 25 through verse 34. And if you've been here the last several weeks, that's nothing short of a miracle. Uh, The Lord will reverse the laws of nature and we'll actually get through nine verses or so this morning. And I trust that we'll do it not in a rushed sense, but in a way that will be beneficial and uh, help you understand this passage maybe a little bit better than you have before or be reminded of what you know from this passage to be true. There's a little bit of a danger this morning that I want to address right here at the outset. I'm sure that your Bible headings tell you what's coming if you're not reading along with us and studying, and I know many of you are. I had a conversation with several uh guys from the church this week talking about Bible study and the struggle that it is to consistently interact with God's word in a meaningful way. And maybe you're there. Maybe that's where you are in your life and you you battle with uh, coming to God's word and gleaning from it the, the intention that he has for it and the application that he intends for us to make to our own lives. And I would raise my hand with you that that is an ongoing struggle. And even this morning in Sunday school, I was reminded by Dave that that struggle lies in our hearts, right? In our affections. If we love Christ and we we are consumed with loving to interact with our Lord, we don't find it such a struggle. And yet we do because we're sinful people. We're fallen individuals. And one of the ways that you can study your Bible meaningfully is to keep up with our study in Matthew. So if you're doing some reading and you're reading through portions of Scripture, I trust you are, in blocks, Uh, so that you're getting a big picture idea of what the Word of God has to say. One of the ways that you can come back to the Word and spend a more specific time is to actually interact with where we are on Sunday mornings. And if you've done that already this week, then you know where we're heading. If you haven't, your Bible gives you a cheat sheet and puts a little heading there on your paragraph. Mine says, do not be anxious. This morning we're going to address this issue in the kingdom perspective of worry or anxiousness. And there is a danger that lies right before us even as we begin this study. And I want to just outline for you the balance that I am seeking to achieve this morning as we study this section. Because there is a potential for some of you who are geared a certain way, who have a certain personality, to find yourself uh, overjoyed with what you find here. That, wow, for once in my study of Matthew... I am off the hook. I don't have a care in the world. Uh, I am happy-go-lucky, whatever in the world that means. I am just an easygoing person. Nothing rattles me. 
nothing gets under my skin. I just go through life and I don't deal with any of the issues of worry. Well, I don't want you to think in the balance of this text that you are off the hook. Because in fact, the scriptures clearly communicate that there are very vital issues that you must be concerned about. And that concern breeds responsibility. It breeds action in us. On the flip side of that coin in the balance, I trust that I won't allow this text to be shortcutted to the point where those of you who actually battle with bringing your life issues into your own control, you battle with worry. You steal from God what he clearly communicates is his responsibility and you make it your own and you possess within you thoughts, constant thoughts of how can I make sure this happens or how can I make sure that doesn't happen? What am I going to do? How's it going to pan out? Are we going to make it? What's this month's budget sheet going to look like? What's going to happen? How are we going to do this? How are we not going to do this? What about our kids? Are they going to, are they going to be raised up the right way? Are they going to turn out okay? And you constantly take things into your mind in such a way to possess them and to steal the responsibility away from your sovereign creator God and bring it back to yourself, a very self-centeredness which creates worry. This passage addresses you. And there are those of you, no doubt this morning, that are here that have very real, heavy concerns on your heart. Maybe you're in the aftermath of tragedy. Maybe you're dealing with a very specific family trial or a personal trial. And you are heavy laden with concern. I don't want you to come to this passage and to walk away sensing that the message here is don't worry, just be happy. Those things aren't a big deal. That is not at all what we find. We find rather that our perspective guides our concern and our care for the needs of this life. Once again, we come to this portion of Scripture and we look forward to the Lord just saying, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And what he does instead is he addresses our hearts. No different than anything else he's done in the Sermon on the Mount, he, come back, he comes back again and again and again to our hearts. And in this particular section, we are dealing with his perspective, the kingdom's perspective from the king himself of not just an undivided loyalty, which is what we've been studying in verses 19 through 24, but now an unshakable trust in our king. We have an undivided loyalty to our king and to his kingdom. And in this portion, he addresses our hearts because the kingdom perspective, so contrary to the world's perspective, has an unshakable trust in the king. Even in the midst of concerns and cares, God's people kingdom citizens, kingdom people, followers of Christ, Christians, whatever label you'd like to stamp, those individuals have an unshakable trust in their king. It's been said that it takes a lifetime to establish trust on a human level, and yet it can be removed in a moment, right? All of you deal with trust issues. That's become kind of a buzzword. I'm having trust issues. Well, we all have trust issues, And in this particular case, Jesus is addressing us with a very real concern about our trust issues with him, which is of the most importance to us. Who do you trust more than anyone else? Who do you think of that will always come through for you in the pinch? Who's always there? Who's always ready and capable of meeting the need? Who do you trust? The big picture here is the kingdom perspective. It's the worldview of the kingdom. And the worldview has one king and one king only. And it has an unshakable confidence in that king because it it depends upon that king for its very salvation, for its very creation, and sustenance for life. That brings us to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Let's read these verses together just to set the table for us, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper into what the Lord has for us here. This is the word of the Lord beginning in verse 25 of Matthew chapter, chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to, this, to a span of, his, of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Some of us are more anxious about clothing than others. But why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This perspective that we'll look at this morning is one that stands in stark contrast to the world in which we live. If the motto of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is, do not be anxious about your life, your culture says the opposite. Worry about your life. That's the message of your culture. Worry about your comfort. Worry about your provision. It's interesting that right on the heels of this treasure discussion of verses 19 through 24, we now come to a second issue, and it really is almost as if Jesus is answering some people in the crowd who are a part of a different social class of people. Maybe they're a part of a different life circumstance, and he says, we are not to be consumed with our treasure. We are to be undivided in our loyalty, and their mind is instantly thinking, well, but what about my daily needs? What about my provision? I am hand to mouth. I don't even know if I'm going to have food tomorrow. What about me? What about my situation? And the Lord comes right back to that issue and he says, because of the undivided allegiance that God deserves and the kingdom deserves, therefore, verse 25 points us backwards, therefore, now here's how we even deal with the mundane needs of life. If verses 19 through 24, we're dealing with the treasures of our hearts, verses 25 through 34 teach us the kingdom perspective with even our daily necessities. And I know, because I'm one of you, that this is hard for us to grasp. Because most of us haven't worried about our daily necessities in a long, long time, if ever. Most of us have never actually worried about whether or not we were going to have clothes you, like me, at some point, whether it was 30 seconds before the actual event of clothing or whether it was yesterday or whether you're really off the charts and you plan out your whole week in advance for what you're going to wear, every one of you did not ask the question, will I have something to wear to church on Sunday? All of you asked the question, what will I wear to church on Sunday? As in, which one of my many options will I choose? None of you. None of you, I trust, this week or even this morning have asked yourself, will I eat today? Instead, we open the refrigerator and ask, what will I eat today? I have multiple options. I have food that hasn't been eaten. I have food that is leftover food. I have food that is healthy for me. I have food that is better tasting to me. All right? I have food in abundance. I have choices I have choices of what I wear. So this passage does not directly connect to us because we live in such an opulent, wealthy society. And yet, it's interesting that the Word of God transcends all cultures. It transcends all periods of time because it addresses our hearts. And so again, we come back to the perspective, the viewpoint of the kingdom. And it's not necessarily concerned with how many pairs of clothing you have. It's not concerned with how much food you have, but rather your perspective, your viewpoint regarding those needs 
of your life. And when it comes to your heart and the way you think about these issues, your king is very concerned. As much as he demands undivided loyalty to him, he also requires and provides for us a perspective of unshakable trust. I'm brought back again to that little phrase that has been drilled into my thinking. We say what we say, and we're going to see this in this text, and we do what we do because we think what we think, and we think what we think because we believe what we believe about God and about His Word and about ourselves. We say what we say and we do what we do. The way you handle the necessities of your life flow directly from the way you think And you think the way you think because of what you believe about the Word, about the God that is revealed in the Word, and about your own life. Action is is permanently linked to belief. That's what we'll find this morning. We're going to look at this second kingdom perspective. And I I was a little bit uh, overwhelmed once I had committed my thinking to going through all these verses. Then I... Then I sat in my office and thought, what in the world was I thinking uh, trying to get through these? So I've divided this up, and I hope that this helps, because Jesus here is the teacher of the highest level. He really helps us with this statement, and he gives us two major, I think, divisions. I'm going to break it up into two divisions to help you understand the perspective that matches the kingdom citizen, this perspective of unshakable trust. So we're going to see first in verses 25 down through verse 30, unshakable trust because of undeniable logic. He's actually going to put us in the courtroom and he's going to argue from logic why it is that we should think a certain way. Or in this case, why we should not respond to our life circumstances in a certain way. Interesting to our study this morning, God is the center of this logic, which makes it theological. That's what we're studying this morning. This is theology. So if you've been scared of theology, I'm sorry, ahead of time, we're going to study theology. That's theological information. Unshakable trust because of undeniable logic. And then we're going to pick up in verse 31 and go through the end of the chapter, seeing unshakable trust because of undeserved grace or sovereign grace unshakable trust because of undeniable logic and undeserved grace let's begin then in verse 25 and let's start the race now to verse 34 verse 25 is really just the heading verse for this section it is the statement that jesus makes that outlines the remainder of these verses he clearly gives a command Do not be anxious, worried, concerned about your life. It seems that Jesus here is particularly concerned with those who were constantly living in concern or burdened by the care of their everyday existence. And he outlines what it is that he's talking about. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And in verse 25, with that rhetorical question at the very end of that verse, the answer is yes. Your life is more about food or more than just food and it's more than just clothing when we speak of our bodies. He's pointing us back to what he had just concluded talking about. Ultimately, food is perishable and clothing will rot. Moths will eat it. And it will be ruined and passed on, just as the earthly treasures are described in verses 19 and 20. This kingdom perspective is particularly and uniquely Christ-centered. We are Christ-centered in our response to our life situation. We are Christ-centered, whether it is we are battling with a divided loyalty, he must be put at the center, or whether we are dealing with the anxiousness the worry about our lives, he must be placed back at the center. So we have this general statement in verse 25 that we are not to be anxious about our lives. Now just before we jump off of that verse and move forward into this instruction, let me comment on the word anxious. And you may have worry. uh, You may have another word that is translated there for you. The reason that there are multiple translations for this same term is that this term itself is not negative. 
Um, we dealt with this uh, last week on Sunday evenings, or on Sunday evening last week. We dealt with the word desire or lust and how it is a neutral word. It is controlled by its context, whether it is positive or negative. Same with the word anxious. Concern is the same term. In fact, Paul uses this same word when he talks about not only is he, is he burdened with the situation that he's in, but he's also burdened with the care for all the churches. That is, the anxiousness, the, the concern for all the ministries. And so this particular phrase is, or this particular word is not itself a negative idea. And yet what we find around this describes for us an extremely negative and antithetical to the kingdom perspective. It is concern about that which belongs to the responsibility of God himself. Jesus goes on now from the general statement to give us two illustrations followed up by logical teaching. Two illustrations to help drive home the point followed up by statements of logic to help seal in our minds the ridiculousness of worry as kingdom citizens. Here we see in verse 26 our first illustration. Look at the birds of the air. And then in verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. He's going to use two illustrations from general life to help us understand how foolish it is for us to give our our concern and our care to the necessities, the needs of our day. It flies in the face of what we know to be true about God. Notice first in verse 26, the illustration that he gives. So familiar to us, the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. All right? I don't know if you've thought deeply about your birds in your backyard. I do every single morning because I have some bizarre bird that sits on our back fence and it screams at us every morning. It is the most annoying bird. I, I have thought evil thoughts about the bird. I've thought pleasant thoughts about ways to kill the bird. I just confess it to you. Um, we are so frustrated by that bird. If we open the back door, the bird is there to help us. I don't know if you've thought about birds, but that bird and all other birds, bless the birds. Love the birds. Okay, Birds are good. Birds are not bad. If you're a bird lover and you can help me know what bird that is, then great, I'll talk with you later. But birds don't do any work. You ever think about it? No, you don't see a bird out there plowing his field. Okay, Birds do not claim areas of your yard, and they start growing their own little crops there, and, and uh, they have their family of birds, and they raise up bird sons that are going to take over the family farm. They, they don't do that. They just eat everybody else's. Okay? They eat what you grow. Birds do not, they do not plant, they do not harvest, they don't do any work, they don't have barns. You don't find a bird that's got like a back stock of food. Uh, They don't store up their own possession for later when they need it. They don't do any of that. And Jesus uses them as a perfect illustration. Notice what comes at the end of verse 26, right in the middle. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. No bird goes without food because birds get the run of the place. They get to eat anybody's food. If they're at Sonic, do they pay for their food? No. No, they eat your french fries when you leave them on your tray. Birds are provided for in every way. Birds do not starve because birds eat freely from the hand of your heavenly Father. And that is a key designation Here's the logic that then follows that illustration in verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? Do you really think that the Lord didn't forget the bird, but he forgot you? Really? You really think that the Lord missed his responsibility to provide for your needs, so therefore you're going to go ahead and take that responsibility on yourself. But the birds that are there, he didn't forget them. That's exactly what Jesus points to us. And the logic is is just, you can't get around it. It's irrefutable. And which of you, being anxious, goes on in verse 27, can add a single hour to the span of his life? So not only does he say, hey, the birds are a picture to you from a lesser to greater discussion. God provides for the needs of his creation. And note to self, you are more 
important to your heavenly Father who has redeemed you for his own name's sake than the bird. Not only that, but what exactly can you accomplish with worry? That's the second logical connection that he makes. What exactly can you accomplish by worry, by anxiousness about your needs? I don't know if we think about this enough, but our worrying about whether or not our needs will be met has never met our needs. Ever. Verse 27 is interesting because you probably have multiple translations of this verse as well. Ours in the English Standard Version says, And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And if you have a King James, you probably have a cubit to his, his stature. Okay, so you're going, whoa, that's, that's a lot different. Well, it is different, and the word cubit is the one that is used in verse 27 with a single measurement. But the one that is translated in the ESV span of life is up for grabs. It either means stature or it means life. The best, I, I think the best understanding of verse 27 is to see this as an idiom that was used. And Jesus is using this just like we would use the word milestone. All right, Maybe you've had your 50th recently. Maybe. Uh, or in my case, uh, you've had your 25th. All right, I can remember my 25th birthday, I think. I'm coming up on 30. <clears throat> and some would say at a birthday party, this is a real milestone for you. Well, have you ever thought about that? I mean, miles are actually distance. Milestones are like length. And this isn't a milestone. Like, I, I didn't actually go so far that now I'm 30. Uh, that's not what we mean by that. What we mean is a milestone represents a point of our lives where we say, wow, look at where we've come to. Jesus uses the same kind of a word picture when he says, who by being worrying or anxious can add a cubit, which is from your wrist to your elbow, a cubit, the forearm, who can add a cubit to the span of your life? I mean, who can extend their lives by worry? Who can benefit their situation by worry? And obviously the rhetorical question is, none of us can accomplish anything because we worry about it. You cannot extend your life. You cannot abbreviate your life. Your days are numbered. And as followers of Christ, as kingdom citizens... We do no benefit to our own spiritual health, nor do we accomplish anything with worry about our life circumstances. Second illustration comes in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? That is your daily necessity for covering, for shelter from the elements, and for the shelter of everyone else who would have to look at you if you didn't have anything. Okay, so here we find clothing. Why are you worrying about clothes? Do I look okay? Will I have enough? Can I get the new clothes? Can I afford the new clothes? What about the shoes? Should I get new shoes? What color shoes should I get? How many shoes should I buy? Will I even have enough money to buy shoes? I only have two pairs of shoes. I need four pairs of shoes. Why are you worrying about your clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Same principle, same illustration, different part of nature. Now we're in the field and we're looking at the flowers. And if you've noticed, no flower actually works up the courage to make his own coat and to have a pink coat. And the other flower on the other bush, wow, that's a pretty white coat that that one spun on his little reel. No, nothing is spun, nothing is sewed. There is no development of anything and yet the Lord provides a covering that is beautiful on the flowers. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that Solomon, the wealthiest man of his time, in all his glory at his at his peak, was not arrayed like the flowers of the field. The illustration is potent. Why are you worrying about clothing when God gives his attention even to the lilies of the field? In other words, do you think he missed you, but he remembered the lily? The wildflower. No, he did not miss you. You are his child. You are his possession through Christ. He loves you with an everlasting love. He is sovereign. He is your creator, sustainer. And he certainly will provide for your covering. Verse 30 is the 
punch of logic, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, or the plants of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, it's here and it's gone, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Same argument from the lesser to the greater. And I I just don't think there's any other remedy to our worry than to realize that we serve and are loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He intimately knows our circumstances. He is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God of the universe. He cares for every minute detail of His creation. When you're watering the flowers, don't worry while you water. Water with an eye to realize that God has made provision even for those flowers. Though they do not toil, they do not spin, they do not make their own covering. When you're putting the seed in your bird feeder, sugar water for your hummingbirds, don't do it while you you worry and gnaw at what will happen tomorrow. Do it with an eye that God provides even through you as a means. He is providing for a little animal that doesn't work. And then pull back and reflect on your Father who is in heaven. Hallow His name and beg of Him to help you acknowledge and to come to the place of unshakable trust in His provision. He is perfect. His plan is perfect. This portion of Scripture not only informs our thinking about our kingdom citizen perspective, but it also speaks volumes about our God as Creator. This is a very scientific passage. Um, I don't know how often you think about it, but the television set or your radio is constantly informing you that God is not the Creator, sustainer of His universe. And there's little slips here and there that help inform you or renew your mind in worldly ways with different media. There is no Mother Earth. There is only Father God. Okay? And Father God provides for the animals that He's created. Father God provides for the plant life that He has created and that He sustains. And Father God should have your unshakable trust because He is your Heavenly Father. It is an act of treason against God to worry about those issues that he has promised to care for in our lives. Robbing him of what is rightly his. The kingdom citizen is the one who lives in the heavenly reality of a sovereign provider. The cares of this life, the necessities of this life are in God's hands. And the result is a careful life of discipline, hard work, met with unshakable trust in a kind Father. Folks, to live a life of anxious worry about your daily circumstances is to live a life of practical Christian atheism. It's to live as if God doesn't exist. That's what worry is. It's a thought pattern that removes God from the picture. Because at best case, if God's in the picture, you are demeaning Him with worry. But in the most familiar case, He's not even in the picture. Worry is the selfish grasping for the responsibility to meet needs that we cannot meet on our own, apart from His strength and His abilities. It is grasping and thinking as if God does not exist. We see this picture painted for us in a different context, but the same illustration used in James. James chapter 4 tells us about Christian atheists. Come now, you who say, verse 13, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There are a myriad of ways that we, as God's people, as kingdom citizens, still battle 
with removing him from the picture and placing our own strength and abilities on the throne that is rightly his. Therefore, verse 25 says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31 uses the same phrase, therefore, pointing us back to what he has just said in those illustrations of the bird and the flower. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying. And here's just a little different perspective, and yet it is the same truth being driven home by the Lord. Here in verse 31, we see unshakable trust because of undeserved grace or sovereign grace. Our worry will be seen in our speech. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What are we going to do? How are we going to make ends meet? How's it going to pan out? What do you think is going to happen? Is there any way we can make it? Don't be anxious with your speech. And then notice verse 32, which paints a picture of contrast. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Here then is the difference between those of you who are kingdom citizens, those who have been blessed by God's sovereign grace, who have been rescued from your sin and your pursuit of your own way to follow Christ, to live in righteousness. Here we have an explanation given to us that logically speaking or theologically speaking, to worry and to speak with worry is to live as those who do not know God. It is a pagan practice. It's a bad habit, spiritually speaking. The Gentiles here, Jesus uses in contrast to the Jewish people, the people of the covenant, using the Gentile nations across the world as a grouping of the pagan pagan people of the world, those who do not know Yahweh God and do not follow His Son. We, on the one hand, as kingdom citizens, live with a certain set of truth statements that guide our thinking, that guide our speech, that guide our actions. In contrast to those uh, priorities and truth statements that the world lives by. Here's what we live by. There is a God. He is my creator and sustainer. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is my Father in Christ. He is all-knowing of my needs. And He will meet those needs with perfect timing and with perfect wisdom. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Unshakable trust because of the undeserved grace that we enjoy as God's people. That brings us then to the centerpiece of this argument from the Lord. The centerpiece, another Awana verse for many of you. This is a memory verse that goes back a long way. But seek first, or if you memorized it like I did, but seek ye first the kingdom of heaven from the old King James and his righteousness All these things will be added to you. Don't forget our context. Our context is verse 31. Do not be anxious. But, in contrast to worry, seek first, place the priority on the kingdom of God and the righteousness that flows from the king. And these issues will take care of themselves. The implications are quite clear. The kingdom citizen is one who gives his attention entirely, verses 19 through 24. His loyalty, his focus, his treasure is all consumed with the kingdom. And he is so consumed with the kingdom and so in love and so knowing of the king of this kingdom that these issues take care of themselves apart from his anxious or her anxious worry. We set our focus on the kingdom And the necessities of life will be added to us from our King and our Father in heaven. Notice, just for the sake of reference, that it doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and everything will be added to you. 
This is one of those passages that if you stay up too late at night and you watch too much TBN, you'll hear somebody preach on this verse. Okay? And just for a $1,000 gift, because you're seeking first the kingdom, I can promise you that it will be turned back to you and you'll receive $10,000 instead. What will be added to us in the context of seeking the kingdom is our daily necessity. It is the meeting of our needs. Therefore, we should not worry. The centerpiece of Jesus' argument. And then he puts this closer in verse 34. And I think this is really interesting. That closing verse, I almost see Jesus with a smile on his face. This is such practical human wisdom. He says to them, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. I mean, after all this, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And then this must have been a common axiom. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, folks, if all of these theological reasons do not guard your heart and mind against worry, you're going to have enough to worry about tomorrow. So don't worry about tomorrow today. You're going to have real needs, real concerns that are going to come up tomorrow. And don't worry, tomorrow will have enough for you to be concerned about. Don't spend today being concerned about what isn't here yet, that being the issues that you'll address tomorrow. This is not a statement telling you not to plan. This is not a statement removing responsibility for the future. This is not a statement about your stewardship. Don't worry about tomorrow. Ah, Tomorrow will have its own troubles. No, what Jesus is saying is don't waste today. Don't waste this opportunity, this stewardship of time, being concerned about what is tomorrow because tomorrow will bring its own issues for you to be concerned about in your daily life. We have an explanation from the Lord in verse 31. Be careful with your speech. Do not be anxious with even your speech. And then we see the contrast, the undeserved grace, the sovereign grace from God that contrasts us in verse 32 from the Gentiles or the pagans and from followers of Christ as kingdom citizens. We have unshakable trust in the king because we have undeniable theological arguments to guide us. We have unshakable trust in the king because of undeserved grace that has set us apart to a new way of life, a new perspective, a new worldview. Jesus brings the message home right to where we live. We're to be undivided in our loyalty and unshakable in our trust. As those who live in the realm of another king, our focus is entirely wrapped up in his wishes, his commands, not our own or the world system in which we live. Now maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself battling with worry. This is a real part of your struggle as a believer. And as I've mentioned with several recently, sometimes I wonder when we say we're struggling with worry, are we? Are we actually struggling or are we just living in defeat in this particular facet of our lives? Maybe you're here this morning and you are living pretty much in defeat. You wave the white flag to worry almost every day, almost every part of every day. Maybe right now you're being tempted to worry about worry. You're starting to worry about it. You constantly battle with these thoughts. You constantly put everything in a cycle in the the hopper and you run it through all of its scenarios and you worry about what might happen. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Let me help or let the Word of God help you. Let me give you the passages that can help you because of the Spirit's power to renew your mind. We need to renew our thinking. Matthew 6 is a good starting spot for us because of the clear teaching from our Lord. Philippians chapter 4 comes right to mind, as I'm sure it does for many of you. Philippians chapter 4, I can read it to you. In the context of dealing with this local church that was seeing so much suffering in their midst, so much of a need for unity and for Christ-like thinking, Paul addresses them in the first part of Philippians chapter 4, and he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, in verse 5. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is present. He is imminent in his return. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What you find in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6 is, is a description of concern that has the proper object, the proper source for the remedy. It is not worry that is left to itself that turns inward. It is a concern and an anxiousness that is turned upward. Notice what we find in verse 7. What a marvelous promise from our Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you battling with worry? Are you not even battling with worry? Or just living in it? In a self-centered, consuming thought pattern? Turn that to the Lord. Give Him those requests with thanksgiving. Acknowledging that He alone can affect the outcome of those scenarios. That He alone has a plan for your life in your daily circumstances. First Peter chapter 5 also comes to mind. A totally different context. Peter here is addressing the shepherds of the flock in 1 Peter 5. And yet he comes back to the, the issue of humility in verse 6 and he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And what does that humility look like before God? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties, all your worries, all of your concerns on him because he is anxious for you. He is caring for you. Beloved, if we're to battle and truly battle with the issue of worry, we must address it at the heart level. It must be at the root level. And the root level, the root problem when we worry is that we are removing God from the picture and we are turning inward and we are turning selfish to remedy our problems, whether it be our needs of this life or whether it be unknown outcomes to current situations. The scriptures, both in Matthew 6, Philippians 4, 1 Peter 5, and that's just the start, help us to renew our minds as we meditate on these truths. We turn ourselves to living in the victory that is provided for us in Christ. May we pursue bringing those requests, bringing those anxieties, and casting them on the Lord because He cares for us. I trust that if you haven't battled your worry, that you will. You have all the tools necessary to live in victory over the issue of worry and anxiety in this life. So what? Verse 25 through 34, what should be our response to this? It gives us a new perspective. It it reminds us that we're pilgrims. That this life is just a moment. We are just passing through and our Lord is very much aware that we're passing through. He knows us intimately and He provides for our needs. We must stand out from the broad way in which the world travels. The common perspective of those around you in your workplace. Of those parents that you interact with at the Little League games. Whatever the case may be, the world system thinks differently than the kingdom citizen. We really do march to the beat of a different drummer. That was the catchphrase in my family talking about odd people. And who are we to pick out who is odd? But we did, and we would say, wow, that guy marches to the beat of a different drummer. I must have heard that a thousand times, and it was sometimes directed at me. Okay, So I'm not, I'm not apart from it. But we as kingdom citizens, we do march to the beat of a different drummer. We are odd. We are set out from the norm. And that drummer deserves our undivided loyalty. And he deserves our unshakable trust and confidence. We are unique. And we must respond to our life situation uniquely as those who have been saved to follow Christ. And then finally, as we wrap up this morning, I want to make this an emphasis as we do almost every Lord's Day. The trusting perspective of verses 25 through 34 cannot be accomplished if there has not been an initial trust that has been placed in Jesus Christ. 
as the substitute for sinners who believe. That's the good news. The good news is if we trust Him, if we place our faith in Him as the substitute who died at the cross, who bore the weight of God's wrath for sin, who died and was buried and was raised from the dead to provide eternal life. If we trust Him, if we stop trusting our own way, our own effort, our own merits, and we trust Christ, then and only then can we ever know the life that is represented, the perspective that is represented in verses 25 through 34. This is for the kingdom citizen. And those who are outside of the kingdom can never know the peace that passes understanding that comes from laying your anxieties before the Lord. I've been studying this week, preparing for that camp, and I can't help it. They all kind of end up running together. But I've spent some time in Romans chapter 5, and verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the message of trust at the base level. It is a confidence in the reconciliatory work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the ungodly. It was accomplished at the cross. Those of you who have been reborn to trust Christ must turn an undivided allegiance and an unshakable trust to the same master that you placed your faith in however long ago the Lord began your spiritual life. Long ago, or not long ago, for some of you, there was a catchphrase, don't worry, be happy. People used to say that to each other. I think the message of Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 is not don't worry, be happy. It is don't worry, be trusting. An unshakable trust that matched with an undivided loyalty provides the perspective of every kingdom citizen.